morning. So we come to the end of uh, week one of the year. Uh, I hope it's been really a fantastic week for everyone. Um, I want to say thank you especially to the freshmen. The energy, the excitement um, that you've brought has been awesome. So thank you and again, welcome to Covenant College, right? Uh, next week in chapel, President Halverson will be speaking on Monday. Uh, Reverend Jesse Purcell will be here on Wednesday, and Pastor Joe Novenson will be here on Friday. Ghetto, looking dapper. They do look good. Uh, we're going to shift gears a little bit. This morning was uh, initially going to be anatomy of uh, freedom. But after last, um, after Monday and Wednesday, we decided to shush it up a little bit and look uh, at the anatomy of something a little bit different, look at the anatomy of hope. And the reality is um, we all need hope. Um, people need hope, uh, always. Uh, when I was 20 years old, I was in uh, kind of a bad way. Um, I had decided, and it had been decided for me, that it was time for me uh, to get clean and to get sober. Um, and I did, so I went to AA meetings for uh, 90 meetings in 90 days and can you continue to do that for a few years. Um, but in those meetings, uh, I met in uh, the bottom of uh, a Presbyterian church near the University of Kansas. It was me and a bunch of old farmers. And for real, um, I won't tell you my nickname that they called me, but they were, they were, they were salty old farmers. Um, and they said something to me, though, uh, the very first time I went. They said, keep coming back. It gets better. And I held on to that one sentiment as my hope. Because at that point in time, honestly, it was the only hope that I had. Keep coming back. It gets better. Now, there are simpler hopes, right? We hope that the weather's nice. Um, we hope that we have a good meal for dinner. But when you look at Scripture and when Jesus starts to talk about hope, the type of hope that he talks about begins to descend into the deepest hopes and desires of the heart and the soul of mankind. When Jesus talks about hope, it's a hope that, like sin, consumes and devours. It's a hope that consumes and brings life. And this morning, we're going to look at uh, John chapter 5, uh, healing at the pool of Bethesda, and we're going to look at this concept of hope. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. So it's in the southern part of the city. It's on the road that led to the Sheep Gate, where literally shepherds would take sheep through. And the road going through that Sheep Gate would lead you straight directly to the temple. The pool was called Bethesda, which means house of grace, or house of mercy. And if you picture it in your mind, it was massive. It was absolutely huge. There were two almost Olympic-sized pools there. And they were surrounded by um, patios or porticos uh, with stone roofs and columns that made these colonnades. Um, it, was, it was incredibly beautiful. And when you think pool, I know you usually think in your mind you're thinking blue, but it was a deep orange, the color of... of um, of land and um, clay, and the water was, was fed from a natural spring. This was Bethesda, the pools of mercy. 
if you were to get a visual of this and look at it from sort of a bird's eye view, you'd, you'd sit and you'd see the pools and you'd pull out and you'd see the colonnades and the porticos and you'd pull out and as you'd get higher, you would see the road moving up to the temple and you would see that the temple literally almost cast a shadow onto Bethesda. So here we're told that a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the waters. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. It was a gathering place. This huge, beautiful pool was a gathering place of the disabled. It was a community of the downtrodden, the disenfranchised, the unclean, and the outcast. And when you pull back and you see the temple sitting there, and you know what happens in the temple, the worship of God, but then you see God's people here in the shadow of the temple, it makes sense that this is soon where Jesus will come. Bethesda, the house of mercy. And it's called that for a reason. Uh, verse four, 4, that part that sounds a little weird, that they're waiting for the moving of the waters. An angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water, and then whoever steps in first gets healed. Um, that's likely not original to the text, but it gives us a clear view into the legend of what happened at that pool. The people gathered there at least had the story in their minds that when the water was stirred, it was an angel that had come down and was stirring it up. And the first person to jump into the water would be healed. Well, our story introduces us to one of those people there, that man that was there. He'd been an invalid for 38 years. And he's going to have an encounter with Jesus. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he'd been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Now, Jesus walks into this setting of the sick, the suffering, the hopeless, in the shadow of the temple, God in the flesh, God who created water, who parted waters for Moses, who can turn water to wine, who can quiet the waters of storms. He stands before them. He sees his children. He sees them ravaged by the fall, ravaged by disease. Despite their being in the shadow of the temple, they're there, and they're looking to this lifeless body of water for hope. But he, the living God, stands before them, and he asks the man, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. And it may seem like Jesus' question was somewhat obvious. Right? The man treats it obvious as well. He says, look, I'm an invalid. When the water stirs, somebody else is faster than me, and they get in first. But Jesus' question has nothing to do with the water, and neither did the man's answer. I don't think that the man actually believed that the water could heal him. I doubt that he believed that an angel actually came down from heaven and magically stirred the waters so that if he got in, he would somehow be healed. We have no evidence of any kind that anyone was ever healed in this pool. It's just a big pool of water. Then why are they there? It was their community. 
place where they belonged, people to be with, where they shared a hope. As far-fetched as that hope was, they shared it and they clung to it. The heart of their community is a legend of hope and it's an impossible longing. But now the great physician stands before him and he asks him, do you really want to get well? Then Jesus says to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and walked. Jesus answers his excuse with a command. The Greek is rise, pick up your mat and walk. And with the word of Jesus, the man is immediately healed. He picks up his mat and he walks. The mat that was a symbol of his brokenness, a symbol of his disease, he now carries victoriously. And you can imagine the reaction of the people. They gathered around that pool with this far-fetched hope that someone could actually be healed by the waters. But now, at the word of this man, they've seen one of their own actually healed. An invalid for 38 years stands at the command of Jesus of Nazareth. Is it possible that for the very first time in their lives they actually have hope? Who is this man that can speak these words and that can actually heal? The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. Now somehow the man runs into the Pharisees possible that he made his way to the temple immediately. It's possible that he was just walking on the streets. But in the aftermath of a life-altering miracle, they confront him with oppressive law. They say, the law forbids you to carry your mat. Now, what was and was not allowed by the law on the Sabbath had been refined by this time to super tiny and minuscule details. In the tradition of the elders, one of the 39 things, categories of work not allowed on the Sabbath was, quote, to carry a bundle from one dwelling to another. So the Pharisees see this man and they say to him, the law forbids you to carry your mat. Now it's possible, it's possible they didn't know who he was. But it's also very possible they knew exactly who he was. It's very possible that they knew that he was the invalid. Possible that they knew he'd also been healed. And if they did, they had an idea who had done it. They'd already encountered Jesus several times. They'd already begun to rise up a bit against him. They tell him now, it's not lawful for you to carry your mat on the Sabbath. But to Jesus, to Jesus, the Sabbath is a blessing. It's given to man for man. It's most worthily kept when God's purpose is done. So healing and healing acts are acts that should be done on the Sabbath because they clearly reflect God's work and his plan amongst his people. But the Jews disagree. He replies to them, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. The man points to Jesus. He doesn't talk about being healed and what a blessing it is. Instead, he deflects a little bit. The man who did this to me, he's the one that told me it was okay to do this. And they ask him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? Who was it? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. And when Jesus slips away, there are likely a number of different reactions. One was probably hope. 
hope from the people that needed to be healed. Can he actually heal me? I've seen it happen. He's gone, and I don't know who he was, but I know that it's possible. And then there's the reaction of the man who was healed, which we'll see play out in just a moment. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Jesus was not done with the man. The encounter wasn't quite over. The Lord does what he does, and he went in search of the man, and he finds him in the temple, a place he was not welcome for 40 years. And this is the critical moment in the passage and in their encounter. He says to the man, you are well again. But when Jesus makes a man's body well, he always does it in the context of the forgiveness of sin. It's never just to show his power. It always goes back to the heart. And he says to the man, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. What he's done for his body is what he wants to happen in the man's soul. Now, something worse may happen to you. He's not threatening him. He's not warning him of a graver disability that's going to strike him down. He's warning him not to be content with the physical healing, not to miss the deeper need of righteousness before a holy God. And he does it by telling the man, stop sinning. And what he's saying when he's saying stop sinning is, stop sinning, seek righteousness. Seek righteousness before God. Allow the healing of your heart to parallel the healing of your body. The man should have asked, how, Lord? How do I do that? How do I seek righteousness? And Jesus would have told him. He would have told him, follow me. Seek righteousness. Follow me. But instead... The man's choice is different. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Now, there's a similar instance to this. In in John chapter 9, Jesus heals a man born blind. And the man, he he, um, uh, encounters the Pharisees as well. And the Pharisees are incredibly brutal. They kick him uh, out of the synagogue. Uh, He is cast out. But when Jesus finds him, he falls down at Jesus' feet and worships. You are the Son of God. That's what this man should have done, but that's not what he said. He did not say, Lord, I believe. Instead, the healed invalid now has the information that he needed, the information that the Jewish leaders wanted. He knows who healed him, and that's what the Pharisees had asked him, so he goes to find the Pharisees. And you have to wonder if after being ignored and shunned and cast out by the religious leaders for his entire life, now He thinks he can go and somehow find acceptance there. He can be accepted, and he chooses the acceptance of the world over the life offered to him by the living God, a false hope over a true hope. And we hope, right? Humans hope. We have to have hope. This morning, I hoped for a sunny slightly less humid day. I hope this weekend to finish a couple of books I've been reading. I hope that I'm having hamburgers for dinner tonight because I saw them in the fridge this morning. I really do hope we're having burgers tonight. Uh, But when we talk about biblical Christian hope, we begin to talk about the deepest desires of the human heart and the deepest desires of our souls. The hope to be known and to actually have real community. The hope 
for forgiveness. The hope that tragedy and sorrow here is not pointless and in vain. The hope that death is not the end of life. The hope that God is who he believes he is. Johnny Cash, right before he died, um, the last interview um, that was recorded of his life was with an old MTV VJ named Kurt Loder. Um, they had a, a, about a 10, 12-minute conversation, but at the end of the conversation, it turned spiritual, and Kurt Loder starts to ask him some questions, and Johnny says, oh, oh, I expect my life to end pretty soon. You know, I'm, I'm 71 years old. I have great faith, though. I have unshakable faith. I've never been angry with God. I've never been, I've never turned my back on God, so to speak. I never thought that God wasn't there. I knew that. See, he's my counselor. He's my wisdom. All the good things of my life come from him. And Kurt Loder asked him, where do you think we go afterwards? And Johnny says, where do we go? When we die, you mean? Kurt Loder says, yeah. Johnny says, oh, well, we all hope to go to heaven. These hopes, our deepest hopes, are each and every one found in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. Peter calls it a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus into which we've been born again. And this hope is alive. It's a hope that brings life. We talked about sin and we talked about how it consumes and destroys. And hope is the exact opposite. It's that which consumes, but instead brings and gives life. For it's only in Jesus that we are truly known. For he created us, he named us, loved us, and adopted us. Calls us into his family. It's only at the cross where Jesus died in our place that we actually have forgiveness of our sin. It's only at the cross where God redeemed the most evil act in all of history for the greatest good in all of history that we have confidence that tragedy and sorrow somehow here can and will be redeemed by his good purposes. It's only in Jesus' resurrection from the dead that we have confidence that death has been conquered and death does not have the final word. It's only in his promise that in his father's house are many rooms that he will one day return for us that we look with Johnny Cash to heaven. But this is where rubber meets the road, where theology meets life and does this, because life is hard, and hope is the marrow of life. On Wednesday, I didn't mean to, I kind of dropped on you guys without shifting context, um, and prepping you for it a little bit, the story of my friend Tim, who lost his wife a couple of weeks ago. Um, she was 32 years old, dear friends of ours that we've known for years. She was 32, and she was four months pregnant. And she had a heart attack and died, completely unexpected. She was healthy, vibrant, loves Jesus. And I've talked to Tim uh, a bunch in the last few weeks, in the face of unspeakable tragedy, he grieves. But he does not grieve as one without hope. He knows that his wife and unborn daughter are with Jesus. He knows that at glory he will one day be reunited with them. He knows that he will get to meet his daughter that he never got to meet. 
and hearing him talk on the phone, hearing him say these things, grieving but bolstered by hope, it's a hope that brings life. He's living in the tension of the pain and tragedy of this world, of a fallen world, but in the promise, in the sure promise of what's to come in Jesus. We hope because God is faithful. He's proven himself to be so from the very beginning of time. We look back throughout all of history, from creation to the garden, all the way through to this very day. He has always and ever been faithful. So we look back to his faithfulness and know that we look forward to our hope with sureness, with faith. And we hope, and it's not in vain. Jesus stood before that invalid and he asked him, do you want to get well? And the man, he chose the world. I ask you, do you have hope? You really, deep down, the depth of your heart, have hope. I'll tell you this, you will only find it in Jesus. He's the only place where we will find true and sure hope. What Augustine said is true. We're made by God, and we're drawn to God by himself, and our hearts Our hearts are restless until they rest in him. Turn to him. Find your hope in him and rest in him. Let's pray. Father, we pray with the Apostle Paul that we will rejoice in the hope of your glory and that you, the God of hope, will fill us with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we may abound in hope. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.